If you have your Bibles with you, please turn to 1 Peter chapter 1 and Philippians chapter 3. We are beginning a brand new series today called uh, Letters to the Exiles. And this is going to be based on 1st and 2nd Peter, which were letters written to the church by Jesus' disciple and apostle Peter. Uh, most of the New Testament was written by Paul, and so every now and then I refer to Peter as Paul, but that's just me robbing Peter to pay Paul, so please forgive that. But a little bit of background on Peter is that he started out life as a fisherman. His dad was a fisherman, probably his grandfather was a fisherman. They grew up in the north of the Sea of Galilee, and he was a commercial fisherman. That's what everybody in his town did. There was no question, hey, what are you? Are you a blacksmith? Nope, I'm a fisherman. That's what everybody did. And so he's sitting there, and he's been going out every day at nighttime to fish, and they drag in their nets in the morning. And one day as he's sitting there, just this common, uneducated fisher, just mending his nets, getting ready to go home and sleep, Jesus approaches him. And Jesus comes up to him and he says, Peter, I want you to follow me. And Peter does something remarkable. He leaves his business behind. He leaves his boat. He leaves his nets, which are very valuable things to them. He just leaves them there on the shore and he follows off after Jesus. Now, when Peter says yes to following Jesus, he has no idea what this is going to entail. The only thing that Peter knows about saying yes to Jesus is that he's leaving his old life behind and he's entering into something new. That's the only thing that he knows. But here is where following Jesus led Peter. For three years, he sat at the feet of Jesus listening to him teach. He was there for the Sermon on the Mount. How amazing would that be? That you could be sitting there, probably way down the hill because it was pretty crowded, but just to be able to hear Jesus give the Sermon on the Mount. How amazing would it be to sit there as he's teaching the different parables, as he's unwrapping and revealing the kingdom of God and the culture of the kingdom of God. Peter is there listening to all of that firsthand. He witnessed incredible miracles. When Jesus took the fish and the loaves of bread and multiplied them miraculously to feed 5,000 people, Peter was there for that. He was one of the people passing out the baskets. He saw Jesus spit into some mud, put it on someone's eyes, and blind eyes were opened. He was there when some friends cut a hole in the roof of the home that they were staying in and lowered a, a paralyzed man before them, and Jesus said, get up, take your mat, and go home. He saw a crippled man get up and walk. He was there when Jesus was casting demons out of people. He was there when Jesus was raising the dead. He saw all of these things firsthand as a result of saying yes to following Jesus. Peter even performed miracles himself as a result of following Jesus. He went out and he prayed for the sick and they were healed. He cast out demons. He saw God do miraculous things in response to his prayers. He was there when Jesus was transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration. He saw Moses and Elijah appear with Jesus as Jesus was you know, revealed in all of his heavenly glory before him. He was there when Jesus was arrested. He probably never saw that one coming when he said yes to following Jesus. Is that someday I'm going to see this man arrested. I'm going to be seeing him put on trial. He denied him three times that he ever even knew the man. He denied that. And then he was there when Jesus 
marched up the hill of Golgotha, carrying a cross. And he saw him crucified. He saw him buried in the tomb. He was there for three days as the disciples huddled up, not knowing what it was that was going on or, or what they were supposed to do next. And he then saw the empty tomb that Sunday morning. He ran there with John, and they saw the tomb, and they didn't know what it was that it meant, but they knew something significant had happened. He was there when Jesus walked through the wall of the place that they were meeting at to prove that he was alive. For 40 days, Jesus taught and instructed his disciples. Peter was there when Jesus gave the great commission to go out into all of the world and proclaim the gospel and for the promise of the Spirit. Peter's decision to follow Jesus meant that he was there on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out on them and they went out into the streets and they proclaimed the gospel in languages that they had never learned in their life. And Peter then got up and gave the first message of the gospel. He was the first one to call people to follow Jesus. And in that moment, 3,000 people said, yes, we're going to follow Jesus too, just like you have. But it also meant that he was going to be imprisoned. He was arrested for preaching the gospel. He was put into jail. And an angel came and broke him out of jail. How crazy is that? You never think that's going to happen to you when you say yes to following Jesus. He planted churches, he preached sermons, he oversaw the church, he performed lots of more miracles, but then he was also opposed fiercely, he was persecuted, he was beaten, he was whipped, he was jailed. And finally, at the end of his life, he stood before Emperor Nero, who told him to recant in his faith in Jesus and to say that Caesar is Lord. He said, if you don't say that, then I'm going to kill you. And Peter said, Jesus is Lord. And so they said, then we're going to crucify you just like your Lord was crucified as a way to humiliate him. And Peter said, I am not worthy to die in the same manner as my Lord. They said, fine then. And they crucified him upside down. Peter didn't know that was going to happen to him when he said yes to following Jesus. He didn't know when he made that decision how much purpose, how much love, how much contentment and joy that he would find in following Jesus. But he also never could see the great tribulations that he would go through. All that Peter knew was that following Jesus was worth more than anything that this world has to offer. He had lived in this world. He had pursued the things that the world had to offer him. And when Jesus came calling him, he said, what this man has to offer me is worth more than anything else. And it doesn't matter what the price is, it's worth it to follow my Lord. And so now Peter is writing to a group of Christians in what is modern-day Turkey. And these people are undergoing intense persecution. There are so many hardships that are facing these churches in Asia Minor. And so he writes to them to encourage them to stay true to Jesus and also to reiterate to them some of the simple truths of the gospel and what it means to live your life with Jesus. And so in 1 Peter chapter 1, 1-2, one we're actually only going to get through two verses today because I'm such a fast teacher. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, 
according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Peter starts out this letter by identifying who he is. He's saying, hey, I'm Peter. But then he goes beyond saying that I'm just Peter. He says that I am an apostle. Peter makes the point that he is writing as an apostle. And it's really important for us to understand this. And and this is why Peter starts out in this way. Because he's saying, I'm not just your friend that's writing to you. I'm not just an older Christian who has some experience and so I can encourage you. He's saying, I'm not even just a disciple of Jesus, someone who was there with him during his earthly ministry. He says, I am an apostle of Jesus. And what that word apostle means is that he was an envoy of Jesus. That he was commissioned directly by Jesus himself and that he had been given authority by Jesus to speak on his behalf. These letters are the authoritative word of God. It's Peter speaking for Jesus Christ himself. These aren't just letters like you and I would write to someone This is God speaking to us. In the same way that they were the authoritative revealed will of God to the church in Asia Minor 2,000 years ago, the same is true for us now in 2015 in Theater 20 of the Rafe Cinema. We can learn just as much as the early church did from this, and it contains the truth of God revealed to us. 2 Timothy 3.16 says this about all scripture. It says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be completely equipped for every good work. Now when it says that all scripture is breathed out by God, it means that these are the words that God spoke through a messenger, a human messenger, but we aren't just reading the thoughts or the words of a human, that we're reading the very words of God spoken to us. Now, we all live in a sinful, fallen, broken world. We all have a sinful, fallen, broken nature. We're a part of a sinful, fallen, broken culture. And so for us, we're not born with this knowledge of what truth is. It's something that we continue to learn. It's something that we continue to gather. It says that our minds are renewed and that we're transformed as we read the word of God, as we bring his truth into our lives. And this is why it's so important that we know and that we understand what God's word is. Because it's how we receive our identity. We're not born knowing who we are. We discover that as God continues to speak to us and reveal that to us. We're not born knowing what truth is. That's something that, you know, our culture has a concept of what truth is. But as you guys have noticed, if we look back at human history and we see what people believed was morally right or wrong, acceptable, it's completely insane. But what makes us think that we in our culture are any different than people have been since the beginning of human history? Hundreds or thousands of years from now, people look back at us and say, oh my gosh, I can't believe these barbarians were so you know, bigoted or racist or, or whatever else it was. But the thing that has never changed is God's revealed truth to us. Cultures change, times change, but God's truth continues to stand the test of time. 
And here's what scripture does. Now, we all like learning, right? When you discover something new, you, you bring that in, and you're like, yes. When you read that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever should believe in him would not perish but have eternal life, you're like, yeah, I like that. I'm learning something. I'm learning about how much God loves me, about how valued, how cherished I am. We love learning things like that. But what scripture also does is it brings correction to us. We don't like correction. You guys ever had a discussion with someone where you're talking about something and they correct you and, and show you that you're actually not right about an issue and it's usually in front of a large group of people and you're like, oh. And you're not like, oh, thank you so much for enlightening me and informing me. I'm such a better person now. Usually you go home and you unfollow them on Facebook. You know, you're mad about, I can't believe that jerk was showing me up in front of everybody. Who do they think they are? Even if you know they're right. Have you guys ever argued with someone when you knew you were wrong? <laughs> I've done that. Everybody's done that. It's like, I know I'm wrong, but I am not going to lose this argument. Uh, like, truth be darned. It doesn't matter who's right or wrong. I am going to win. Because that's part of human nature. That's what we do. And the same thing happens to us when we read scripture. When we come across a passage that brings correction to us because we've been believing something that was wrong, we're usually not like, oh, Jesus, thank you so much for showing me how I was living in sin. We're usually like, well, I don't believe that. No, this can't be true. This is written just for that culture at that time. You know, we always try to find ways to rationalize or, or to justify the things that we've been believing. And Jesus says some really hard things, and all through Scripture, Jesus says some really hard things. Through the prophets in the Old Testament, through the apostles in the New Testament, God speaks some things to us that can be pretty hard. And usually, the more personal it is to you, the more involved you are in this, the harder it is for you to accept. Now, when Jesus says, if someone strikes you on the cheek, I want you to turn your other cheek to them also, well, if you've never been hit on the cheek, it's like, yeah, that's some good advice. I love this kingdom ethic. It's so enlightened. But if you're someone that's getting beat up every day, you come across that verse and you're like, that's just stupid. What happens when they hit me on the other cheek? And so the more personal the verse is to you because of your involvement in what the verse is addressing, the harder it is for us to accept correction the more it conflicts with our cultural views, the more it conflicts with our political views, the harder it is for us to receive correction from God on an issue. And what we do is we just reject it. Now this week we saw just the most deplorable, senseless tragedy that we have seen in a long time. You see, Jesus says something like, love your enemies. Pray for them. Bless those who curse you. That's easy for you when you have a really good life, when you don't really have any enemies, when nobody's cursing you. But when someone walks into your church, into your prayer meeting, and they begin to kill your mom, your dad, your husband, your wife, your son, your daughter, your friend, now that verse has become a lot more personal to you. Because now it's affected you in some way. Now you know what it's like to look evil in the face. And here's the miracle that we saw this week. Probably some of you have seen the different video footage of 
a brother and a sister who were being interviewed at their school whose mom had been killed in this. And they said, love is stronger than hate. I forgive him. When they said, what's the message that you would give to your mother's killer? They said, we love you, we forgive you, and we pray that you turn your heart over to Jesus. When that young man was arraigned, they gave the different, um, the different victims had uh, representatives that were able to say something to the court. And every single one of them, for all nine victims that died in this attack, they all got up and every single one of them said, I forgive you. They said, you have hurt me more than I ever knew that I could be hurt. You've hurt me more than I can bear. But I forgive you. And I pray that you repent and that God has mercy on you. Every single one of them. How amazing, how miraculous is that? Because you see what happened is when they read John chapter 6 and they read how Jesus said that we're to treat our enemies, they took it seriously. They said, this is God's revealed truth for me. And so even when I don't understand, even when it doesn't make sense to me, I'm going to put my faith in what God has revealed to be true. And because every one of these people has done it, it doesn't mean that they're not going to hurt anymore. There's still going to be a hole in their life. There's going to be a pain that lasts from now until they pass into eternity. But their life is not going to be destroyed by bitterness. Their lives will not be destroyed by unforgiveness. Jesus is going to bring healing into them because they've been able to follow God's truth that says to forgive your enemies. It wasn't because our enemies need it so much. It was because we need it so much. Unforgiveness is a poison that will destroy us. And so by them forgiving and releasing this man from the debt that he owes them, they release themselves from the bondage that Satan himself tried to place on them as a victim. That's a hard truth to accept. And I pray that none of us ever find ourselves in that kind of a situation where we have to offer that kind of forgiveness to someone. But it's so important now that when we come to Scripture, we recognize that this isn't just some letters that someone wrote to us. This isn't some good ideas. These aren't some ways that are best to live your life. This is God's truth that's been revealed to us. And we have to come to it and we have to make the decision as to whether I'm going to be corrected by Scripture or whether I'm going to reject Scripture. Because you see, not everybody lives the way that these incredible people in Charleston do. In fact, I mean, right now, if you look at what's happening in the Western church, it's just absolutely insane. Pretty much every doctrine, pretty much every sense of morality that we have believed in as Christians and even as people going before into the Old Testament has come under attack. And a lot of times by Christian leaders. There was a one guy who was a pastor here in the state of Michigan, and uh, he, he's no longer here, no longer the pastor of a church, but he's trying to be a spiritual guru. And so he's really kind of come against a lot of Christian moral teachings. And he, in debates, he actually said this. He said, if your best defense for what you believe is a 2,000-year-old letter, then you are irrelevant. When a lot of people heard him say that, they were shocked. He was someone that used to preach at my chapels when I was uh, at Cornerstone University. And a lot of people and my friends like, can you believe that he said this? And I said, no, I mean, I'm relieved that he said this. Because at least he's finally being honest about how he views scripture, about how he views God's revealed truth. 
what happened is he came to some scriptures and he said, this is a hard thing for me to accept. So I'm going to reject it. And the only way that I can reject this is by saying is that scripture isn't really God's revealed truth to us. That it's just some letters that someone wrote. And that's why Peter starts out by saying, I'm an apostle. These letters that I'm writing to you, they aren't just letters. I'm writing under the authority of Jesus. I speak for Jesus. And this is God's revealed truth for your life. Now, I can guarantee you, as you continue to study Scripture, and man, I hope you do every day, study what God has revealed to you. Study His truth. Allow it to correct you. Allow it to teach you. Allow it to empower you. But you are going to come up against some of God's truth that seems hurtful to you, that seems harsh to you, things that don't make sense, things that you can't understand because you've gone through something and now it's become very personal for you and it's hard for you to accept this. Listen, I'm a pastor and I still struggle through this. Because I was born not the way that I am now. And so I carry a lot of baggage with me. There are a lot of hurts that I have that Jesus is still bringing healing to. And also I am a product of the fallen culture that we're all a part of. And when I come against something that I don't understand, this is what I do. I say, God, I know this is your truth, even when I don't understand it, even when it doesn't make sense to me. But I pray that through the Holy Spirit that you would unlock this to me, that I would not be offended. Jesus says all the time, do not be offended by me. It's because he said some things that are hard for us to accept. And this is what I've discovered. When Jesus and I have a disagreement, he's never been wrong once. It has always been me. And so that makes it a little bit harder for me now because I recognize, okay, we have a disagreement. I've always been wrong. You've always been right. So there's a pretty good chance you're right on this one too. But this is what I have discovered in life. Even though the Bible doesn't always make sense to me, even though there are some really hard, offensive teachings in Scripture to me, is that I said yes to following Jesus because he's the one that gave me life. When I said yes to following Jesus, I became alive. I was so blessed by Jesus. And for me, there's no turning back. No matter what the cost is, no matter how hard the truth might be to accept at times, there is no turning back for me. And I hope that we can all say that, that there is no turning back for us. Even though the road is hard, even though it's bumpy, even though we don't always have understanding, we found life in Jesus. And that's something that this world could not offer us. So Peter's writing as an apostle. And then secondly, Peter is writing to the exiles. 1 Peter 1.1, it says, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. Now, the word dispersion refers to dysphoria, which is what the Jews referred to as the time when they were exiled from the land of Israel. What would happen is when a nation would come in and conquer you, the way that they make sure that you don't have a resistance and a backlash against you in the future is they just send all of the people from the nation they just conquered out into other parts of the empire and they bring in people from other parts of the empire into the newly conquered nation. That way there's no national identity, there's no cultural identity, you don't have a bunch of people that are wanting to fight back and retake the land because it's not their homeland anymore. And so when this happened to Israel a couple different times, 
uh, they were then dispersed across the empire. And at this point, it's the Roman Empire. And in Palestine, there are about one million Jews at this point living there, but there are about four million Jews living at other places across the empire. So there are many more Jews living across the Roman Empire than were actually living in Israel. And normally what would happen is as you were moved hundreds or even thousands of miles away from your homeland and away from your people, you would begin to adopt the new culture that you moved into. You'd forget about your Jewish identity, you'd forget about your religion, you'd forget about your traditions, and you'd just become a new product of whatever culture it was that you lived in. But this didn't happen for all of the Jews. The Jews were a very peculiar people to their conquerors because they continued to live as Jews wherever it was that they were placed. And that wasn't true for all of them, but there were large communities of Jews who continued to uphold their faith, continued to uphold their traditions, continued to basically live as a colony of Israel in the new land that they lived in. And they were not viewing themselves as being, you know, okay, I'm a Byzantinian now or whatever. They said, I am still a Jew. My home is still Israel. My allegiance is still to the nation of Israel. And I long for the day when I can return back to my home. And Peter uses this as an analogy for the way that we are as the church. He says that you guys are a colony of heaven. That you live in a place that's not your home. Our home is the kingdom of heaven. Our king is Jesus, and to him do we owe our allegiance. He says, what you guys are doing is you're living as a colony of heaven, you're living as a colony of light in a culture of death. And that you need to uphold the culture of the kingdom of heaven and the place in which you live, and you need to continue to long for the return of your king Jesus. Now, the natural temptation for all of us, because we, we are foreigners, it says uh, in Philippians 3, 17 through 21, Brothers, join me in imitating me and keeping your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory is their shame, with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Paul says some of you guys have fallen away. And this is what Peter is telling them too, is that there are temptations to fit in, to try to live as a part of the culture that you are around but you need to stay strong. You need to remember who it is that you are. You need to remember where your allegiance is. You need to remember the culture of the kingdom of heaven because when you begin to adopt the culture of this world, you find out that this world has nothing to offer you but destruction. And for those of you that didn't grow up in the church or maybe have veered away from the path for a while, you know that what this world has to offer you doesn't lead you anywhere that you want to go. It ultimately leads to destruction. That's what this world offers you. It looks attractive, the things that the world has to offer you, and it looks like the way that you've been living, like, man, let's just give this up. This is hard. This is pointless. I'm just going to go out and take these things that seem so attractive. That's the constant tension that we live in. All of us experience that on a daily basis. We don't always want to stick out. We don't always want to look different. We don't always want to have to keep fighting and struggling. It'd be so much easier just to give in at times. But when we give in, it leads to our destruction. But when we stay strong, 
when we stand firm, it leads to our glory. We're exiles. This isn't our home. We live here. We have jobs here just like everybody else. We have families just like everybody else. We enjoy sports and other cultural things just like everyone else. The difference is where our allegiance lies. The difference is the culture that we're going to live according to. We cannot live according to the culture of this world, which is a culture of death and destruction. We have to live according to the culture of the kingdom of heaven. And then finally, Peter says, I'm writing to the elect. And this word means chosen. It doesn't mean that there are just a few people who God has chosen to be Christians and everybody else is like, hey, sorry, you guys are out of luck. What it means is that we didn't choose God. He chose us. See, here's the way that we typically live our lives, is we recognize that there's a God, and and we might even recognize who the correct God is, and you you try to reach out to God, and you think, okay, I've got to make myself presentable to him, because right now, the way I am, I'm in no condition to stand before God. And so you try to live a better life, you try to straighten up, you try to clean up, you do all of these things to make yourself acceptable to God, and then you find out that you fail miserably at that. Either that or you go there and you think, man, God's lucky to have me on his team because you're a self-righteous jerk. And you think that somehow that you are deserving of God's love and favor. Like, God, good news, I got this one under control. You're lucky I'm on your team. What it means that we are God's elect is that God chose to come to fallen, sinful humanity exactly as we are as dirty, as messed up, as fallen, as addicted, as you know, depressed, as everything else as we possibly can be. And he said, I'm coming to you to clean you up. You don't clean yourself up. That's my job. God chose us. He initiated the relationship with us. He invites us to come to him. He invites us. He said, I've come to you. I'm inviting you to come into my family. You were created to live as a son. You were created to live as a daughter of mine. And you haven't been living that way because you've been believing some lies. You've been living as an orphan. But today I'm calling you to live as you really were created to be. And it doesn't matter how messed up you are. I love you. I accept you. And I'm strong enough to change you. That's why it says that we're sanctified by the Holy Spirit. That's what the Holy Spirit did. When I made a decision to follow Jesus, one minute later I was just as messed up as I had been before I decided to follow Jesus. And if you looked at me one year later, you might have said, this guy's not a Christian. But God was continuing to work in my heart. And every day he's changing me. And who I am now will be nothing like who I will be 20 years from now. Because God continues to work in my heart. He continues to remake me into his image, to remake me into the way that I was always created to be because of his love is so great for us. And he says that we've been sprinkled by his blood. And what that refers to is that Jesus came, the Son of God, God in the flesh, came to us. Because we were so broken, because we were so sinful. And he said, I'm going to take your sin from you. I'm going to bear the penalty for your sin on the cross so it'll be like you never sinned before. You will have no guilt. You will have no shame. You will have no condemnation. You will have the righteousness of Christ on you. That will be how you're identified from now on. So this is the message 
that God speaks to us today as to our identity. You might be broken. You might have fallen. You might feel unworthy of God's love. But he came to you anyway. Because of his great love for you. And we can never forget that. Would you guys stand with me this morning? This morning as we pray, I encourage you, like I do every week, let's, let's listen to God. What is God saying to us this morning? Because he is speaking. Just invite him. Say, God, would you speak to my heart this morning? What is it that you need to tell me? Maybe it's an issue of truth that he's been wrestling with your heart and you finally need to surrender and say, God, I, I don't fully understand. I don't fully comprehend, but I'm not going to be offended by you anymore. I submit myself to your truth. Or maybe it's that he's speaking to you that you need to live like you're a part of the colony of heaven here on earth. And to put away the temptations that have been trying to draw you away to make you fit in and be a part of this culture and, and what it has to offer to you. Or maybe today he's taught you something. Maybe the truth that he's revealed to you today is that you're a son, that you're a daughter, that you're loved, that you're cherished, that he laid his life down to rescue you. And this morning, you need to say yes to Jesus as he's calling you to follow him. And this morning, with every eye closed and every head bowed, if God's calling you this morning and saying, come and follow me, and this morning you want to say yes to following Jesus, when you raise your hand with me, just so that we can pray with you as you enter into the newness of life with Christ. Thank you. Thank you. And church, let's pray this prayer together because it's something we all need to come back to. God, thank you for loving me. Jesus, thank you for dying for me. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins and that you rose victorious from the grave. And now I say yes to following you. Forgive me of my sins. Remove my guilt and shame. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. And lead me into your truth. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.